Welcome to Counterintelligence. This is Eric LeVay. Today's guest is legal analyst Michael Zeldin. Thanks to Patreons Dana Berry, Samantha Cicero, Andre Dunka, William Healy, Angela Jackson, Zacharias Zskor Kaminsky, Sasha Millstone, Craig Pierce, and Greg Schneider. Michael Zeldin, welcome back to Counterintelligence. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you back, Michael. Uh, just for the audience, of course, you are a Department of Justice veteran. Uh, you were chief of the money laundering unit, and you're an impeachment expert, which is why you're here again. Uh, actually, I just asked you, but I'm going to say it again on air. Are you uh, are you sick of talking about impeachment yet? No. How did <laughs> anyone get sick of talking about impeachment? Michael, it was such a momentous week. And so just to ask the obvious question, um, what are your thoughts on the impeachment of Donald J. Trump? Well, I think that on the merits of the matter, that is whether or not he abused the powers of his office and whether he obstructed a congressional investigation, I think the facts are pretty overwhelming that he did both of those things. It's unfortunate that it is breaking down so strictly along partisan lines. That's another matter to discuss in a few minutes. But on the merits, I think that the articles of impeachment um, agreed to are correct. Did you have, you know, we talk legal issues on this show and uh, we talk on the, the political stance, but I was just curious, I mean, on a, on a personal level, did you have any thoughts just about what you saw and uh, what this country has been through and the impeachment? Well, yes, impeachment, as the uh, framers of the Constitution said, should be rarely used and only used, you know, appropriately. And that's why we're only up to our, essentially our third impeachment in the history of of the country, because it has been used uh, sparingly and thankfully as such. What was disappointing to me most in watching the deliberations in the House was the complete partisan divide, no Democrats to speak of two in the end, and uh, no Republicans, one to speak of, if you count Justin Amash, who was Republican until a few weeks ago and then became an independent, that the hold of the president on the Republican Party is such that you do get very few votes of conscience and many more votes of political expediency. Right. For a little historical perspective, I know that obviously uh, Bill Clinton and Andrew Johnson were impeached. I mean, in those impeachments, there was more of a, a little more of a, it wasn't like as partisan as it was now, correct? Right. It wasn't quite as partisan. There were a couple of people who crossed party lines in, in um, the Clinton impeachment, which is much more relevant than the Johnson impeachment. But um, yeah, we've had some crossover, um, more so than we saw in in this one. Um, but still, what um, has been known about impeachment pretty much is that each side, you know, sort of retreats to its own corner, and pretty much they stay there unless something, you know, substantial happens, as we saw in the case of Richard Nixon, where um, the Republicans revolted against him because his conduct was so revolting. Right. In that case, that was kind of the, they, they revolted and that was it. But that didn't happen this time. No, it didn't. And it's interesting. The Democrats showed, I think, a little bit more courage politically than the Republicans, which is to say that there are many Democrats who were in districts that voted for Trump and flipped in 2018. So blue to red states. Most of those Democrats, all but I think two, uh, voted 
for the articles of impeachment, knowing that the consequence of that vote may be in their red-leaning districts, that it could cost them their seat. Yet they determined that as a matter of constitutional imperative, they were required by that constitutional imperative to vote in favor of the articles of um, impeachment. On the Republican side, we saw no such um, acts of courage, political courage. That is, (laughs) someone said recently that, I think it was um, Jeff Flake, the former Arizona senator, wrote an op-ed that he said that if the vote in the Senate to impeach and remove, uh, to rather convict and remove, were held in private, 35 senators, 35 Republican senators would vote to convict and remove. And others have said um, the same. But because, of, as I said, the stranglehold that the president has on the Republican Party and the degree to which he is popular with the Republican base, these Republican senators who know that this conduct was inappropriate, who know that reaching out to a foreign party to interfere in U.S. elections and target a U.S. citizen in the process is constitutionally impermissible, nonetheless voted uh, essentially with the president, which is really voting for themselves and the seats that they've got to defend in 2020. I tell you, this Republican Party is really a profile in courage. You, it's like right up there. I'm trying to be as sarcastic as I can, but it's it. It has, speaking of which, I mean, the vote, this is going to sound obvious, but you cannot vote an impeachment in secret for it has to be public. Uh, Correct. Yeah. And I think Jeff Flake um, was essentially saying um, what we've been just talking about, which is that people are voting essentially for their own political livelihood as opposed to what the Constitution imp- you know, sort of it requires them uh, to do their oath of office to, to defend the Constitution and uphold the laws of the United States should trump, no pun intended, should trump party loyalty. But on the Republican side, it did not. And that, to me, in watching this was the most disappointing part of it, including among the the people who lack the profiles and courage that you were um, <laughs> making reference to are many members who are retiring because they're just tired of being so essentially Republican congressmen and women. Um, they were retiring, and yet they dared not vote against Trump uh, for fear that perhaps down the line, if they want to run for political office again, that the stain of having gone against this president will be something that is indelible and cannot be uh, undone for them. I guess it really speaks to, as as much as I might not like them for their lack of courage, it really speaks to also their base. The, they wouldn't, everything's ruled by their voters. So that's really, I guess if someone's going to be mad, it, it's, they're, they're just doing what they think their district's going to support, you know? In, in some measure, but I think that they have to bring their own level of independence uh, as well, their own sense of right and wrong and moral and immoral uh, to their job. And uh, they are not just there to take a litmus test of their mm-hmm. voters' sentiment and whatever the 50.1% want they're going to do. They have uh, been invested with independent judgment, and that's what they are not exercising in in my estimation. And that which I find, that is which I found most uh, disappointing about it. But to your point about 
them voting what their districts largely want, that raises the whole question of um, gerrymandering and why it is that Congress is so dysfunctional is because these districts have been so gerrymandered that they're red and they're blue and there are very few purple. And without that purple, then people don't have to listen to the other side and they can just vote, you know, sort of strictly along party lines, which does not lend itself to good government. Yeah, I really feel like it's always important just to step back and again, look at what you and I both know, which is that literally, as this is happening, the president's personal attorney is still abroad trying to gather what extortion info on Joe Biden. I mean, how at, during like I don't know when he got back from his other trip, but how it's still happening, isn't it? Well, the president still believes that Ukraine, to use his words, had it in for him, meddled in the election. He knows that. It was reported in the papers uh, today. I forget it was whether it was Washington Post or the New York Times. It was reported today that he knows that because Putin told him so. Um, and he's still you know, stuck on this notion that Ukraine had it in for him. And if we know anything about Donald Trump, which is uh, uh, absolutely true, and that is that he carries a grudge. He carried it against John McCain. He apparently carries it against Congressman Dingell, and he carries it against the Ukrainians. And that's unfortunate. You have to overcome these things when you grow up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And that was the Washington Post. And that article was, uh, I, I guess we did know a lot of that. But again, just looking at it, the article stating that, I guess saying that basically, Putin put that in his head, including a meeting where Trump ordered his translator to rip up the notes. I, I find myself again wondering, am I living in a simulation or a dream world? Like, well, <laughs> it's hardly a dream. It's, you know, sort of, um, it's hardly uh, utopian. Um, yeah. it, it's more 1984-ish than Shangri-La. But um, we do live in uh, a very polarized world. And we live in that world in some measure because of gerrymandering, as we talked about, but also because of uh, news sourcing. It was, in my youth, uh, that one could get their news from a very limited number of sources, CBS News, ABC News, NBC News, the Nightly News, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, the Chicago Tribune, a few papers. And that was it. And that was sort of the facts. You could then form an opinion based on those facts. People had divergent opinions, obviously. But there was a sort of consensus around basically what the facts were. Here, we don't even have consensus around what the facts are. And that's why you live in this, you know, uh, Venus and Mars sort of world. Right. The the alternative facts, a phrase that will go down in, uh, well, I hope it won't go down in history, but maybe it will uh, from Kellyanne Conway. And, and and just to say, I guess on the positive side, it is great that there is now like people like us at Forensic News and this podcast can can have a voice. But on the negative, as you said, it's now possible for any fool, literally, with a with a f smartphone to really inject uh, dangerous propaganda into the dialogue. Uh, yeah, and I think what we will find going forward is a, a, a greater push to somehow control, like through the Federal Communications Commission or, or something, on-air content delivered through um, alternative um, media uh, platforms, internet and uh, iPods and other things like that, because it's it's 
undemocratic in in some respects, very democratic in other respects. But but I think in the end, it is dangerous uh, to have sort of a world where there are no facts that are in consensus. You know, one thing I think about right down the street from where I am right now is uh, RT's bureau, a uh, you know propaganda outlet uh, played for by the Russian government. I was warning at you as a obviously an expert in law. Do you have any thoughts on? I know our First Amendment obviously protects. Uh, it's it's a very expansive uh, protection of free speech, but right down the street from me is literally a propaganda outlet from a country that attacked this nation, uh, our election. Do you think that they should be allowed to do that in this country? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think broadly speaking, I um, favor a robust First Amendment. I believe sort of in the marketplace of ideas which is that you know good ideas will rise to the top and bad ideas will fail now your listeners might say yeah but wait a second you didn't you just say we needed to have more regulation over um the internet and speech around that and and those are not in my mind in contrast because if you are using the internet to perpetuate lies and falsehoods and knowingly um do so then there has to be consequences of that, just as free speech is limited in some sense by the inability to yell fire in a crowded movie theater. There has to be some limits on sort of essentially propaganda. Um, Now, here uh, you ask about Russian television, RT, and they are, you know, a state-controlled radio um, and TV outlet, but I believe that they have a right to have their voices heard, just as we send communications through the Voice of America all over the world, touting what we think is the you know benefits of 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 life here. So I think that that's okay. It's, that's that's fascinating. Do you think that just just on one more point about this? Do you think though that the the Voice of America, I don't know, has the same targeted kind of propaganda where, as RT, or do you think it's equivalent? Uh, Well, I don't know. I don't study the content of those um, carefully enough to know whether they are equivalent or or not. All I know is that we we have the Voice of America, which was, you know, essentially set up to be the Voice of America overseas. um, And I think RT is sort of probably thinking of itself as doing the same thing, whether the content is equivalent. Uh, We'll have to let somebody else who studies that stuff (laughs) give us the answer. Fair enough. Um, bringing it back to impeachment, I do have to ask uh, what seems like the dumbest question ever. But I mean, what what did you think of the Republic? I don't know if I want to call it a defense, but what what was that that they put up for weeks? Well, it was a defense on the process, meaning that they believed um, sincerely, I expect, that the process that the Democrats set forth with respect to the president and his rights to contest the allegations against him was unfair and that as a consequence the outcome was predetermined and um, there's some um, truth to that I think there could have been um, broader participation allowed for um, in the process uh, for the for the Republicans I think some of the witnesses that they had proposed might um, have been allowed to have testified, not the Hunter Bidens who were completely collateral to the inquiry, but there were there were others that had some relevance that seemed to have been um, excluded. But there was very little 
on the the merits of the allegation. If the first allegation, the first article of impeachment, is that the President of the United States asked or demanded of a foreign President Zelensky of Ukraine, in this case, that he investigate a U.S. citizen who is a political rival in order to uh, gain dirt on him, there there is no um, on-the-merits defense to that. The transcript that the President himself released explicitly shows that that's what the president did. Instead, what they did was to say, well, because the aid ultimately was released and because that aid was not directly tied in in the language of um, the law by a quid pro quo of this for that exchange, the, the, the case fails. But what that defense fails to recognize is that the the heart of the matter is the request, the solicitation of the investigation, irrespective of whether or not there was a second act of quid pro quo of withholding military aid until that investigation was publicly announced, that's secondary to the question of whether or not the president of the United States asked the president of another country to investigate his political rival for his personal benefit and not in the national security interest of the United States. There was no defense put forth to that allegation, and that's the heart of the abuse of power allegation. Similarly, on the question of obstruction of Congress, there was no meaningful defense because the White House counsel, Cipollone, wrote a letter to the um, House, and it said, essentially, because we don't like the process that you're following, we will not cooperate with you in in any way. It was a flat-out, you know, giving of the middle finger um, to the to the house. the uh, The audience can lit and can read the art the letter the letter of October eighth, two thousand nineteen, uh, to Nancy Pelosi and Chairman Elliot Engel of House Foreign Affairs and Chairman Adam Schiff of um, Permanent Select Committee on the on Intelligence and Elijah Cumming now passed away was at the time the chairman of oversight. And what he says in that letter is essentially for the reasons that I state above, which is all these process reasons, um, the president of the United States uh, will not um, cooperate in this investigation in, in, in any way. Um, and that is not permissible. They don't have that breadth of authority. They can go to court and challenge subpoena by subpoena. They can, on a witness-by-witness basis, assert executive privilege or whatever other privileges apply to that witness. They can move to quash subpoenas for documents if those documents are, that document request is overbroad or um, also covered by privilege, but they do not have the right to say, you leave us with no choice to not participate wholesale in your inquiry. The language he says is President Trump and his administration cannot participate in your partisan and unconstitutional inquiry under these circumstances. That is not their prerogative. They have privileges to take things to court, which they didn't really do. The House, I think, um, should have gone to court themselves to enforce the subpoenas, but it was within their right to say, 
when you tell us that you will not cooperate in any way, shape, or form, that you will not allow any witness to testify, although some of the career um, civil servant um, and a few even political appointees did um, testify against the president's uh, wishes, when you tell us that you have ordered no one uh, to testify and no documents you produced, we're going to just call that um, obstruction of Congress. And, mm. and you know, you'll suffer the consequences of your decision. I think both of those things were not defended on the merits by the Republicans. It was really an argument about the fairness of the proposition. And, you know, that's fine. But when you get to the Senate, the, the fairness of the proposition that led to this is really not, again, a defense to the merits of the allegations. Right. The whole, def- whatever, they just seem to say we're not showing up. I mean, what, you you know, you were a criminal investigator, a prosecutor. I mean, what? when did that ever fly? Someone just said, you know, I'm not, I don't feel like showing up to court. They don't have that right. <laughs> but generally, prosecutors will then enforce the subpoena um, and seek to hold the, 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 the recalcitrant witness in contempt and either send them to jail uh, Ken Starr did that in his investigation. He sent Susan McDougal, who refused to testify, to jail. She spent uh, a year and a half in jail um, because she wouldn't testify before Ken Starr. So, you know, she has the right to be held in contempt, if you will, and, and, and spend, you know, 18 months plus in, in, in jail. Uh, in that case, the uh, prosecutors uh, sought to hold her in contempt and and succeeded in holding her in contempt. I think the House could have done the same thing here, but they felt that the timeline with the election um, around the corner um, mandated that they proceed um, without being delayed in the courts, which could take years. Do you think that was a good decision to not throw people in jail who are just mocking our laws, mocking our system? Uh, well, I don't know that they would have ended up in jail necessarily, um, but I do think that the House could have moved to enforce its subpoenas more aggressively. Because if you look at the cases in which they have sought um, enforcement of their subpoenas, the testimony of Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, the request for tax records of President uh, Trump, um, held by his accounting firm, all of those cases where they've sought to enforce their subpoenas, when the president said, I'm not giving you any of this stuff, and I'm not allowing Don McGahn to testify, all of those cases, they have won. The court has said, you must um, show up, you must produce the documents, you must testify. So I think the House would have won had they gone that route. But if you look at Don McGahn, for example, that case has been sort of in the court system for a year and almost a year and now with a ruling that says he must appear he uh the president is appealing it and so we've got to wait now for a court of appeals and then as we saw in the case of the tax records um held by the the accounting firms and the tax preparers the supreme court has just announced that it will hear three of those cases and that they have um, set it down for hearing in March, which means we won't hear from them until June. Um, and then, depending on what their order is, that could be the end of the day, or they could send it back to the lower courts for further evaluation. That's what the that's what the Democrats were afraid of. This thing was just stretched on and on and on, and that the only course they had available to them was to say this is contempt of Congress, and. Um, 
we're going to uh, seek an article of impeachment against you. It's interesting because I wonder, like to me, stretching things on sometimes, I don't know, I, I can see that having a, a positive in a way. If, if you're pummeling someone in the public eye who's just corrupt, I don't know, I see it differently, like maybe not from a legal perspective. I, I think they should stretch this thing out like a boxer and just, you know, pummel the corruption on TV. But what yeah. do I know? Well, I mean, actually, it's an interesting um, sort of analogy because I think it was uh, Chairman Schiff who said, we are not going to do a rope-a-dope with the Republicans, referring to the fight against um, George Foreman and Muhammad Ali, where uh, Muhammad Ali, um, facing a much stronger and bigger George Foreman, decided that he was just going to cover up for uh, many rounds until Foreman who was flailing, flailing away at him, got so tired he couldn't keep his own hands up, and then Muhammad Ali counterattacked and, and, and won the fight. He said, Schiff, I'm not going to be sucked into a rope-a-dope. We're, we're just flailing away, and then the next thing we know, it's, it's 2020, and people are focused on other things, and our um, constitutionally mandated acts um, become an afterthought. So, yeah. I mean, different strategies, yeah. uh, different people have different strategies, as we, you and I have sort of concluded in a sense, we both would have preferred the House to go to court and enforce its subpoenas, but I think we both understand the dangers of having that stretch out for years and years. That's true, and uh, as they say, I mean, there's in life there's not, especially in something like this, there's not a right answer, maybe, uh, and... Well, I, I like to think that whatever I say is the right answer, but <laughs> most of my family disagrees with me. Well, let me just say, um, I, can't, I can't speak for your friends and family, but uh, I can say with 100% confidence that everything you say on this show is the right answer. Will be held, will, <laughs> will be held against me, right? This, uh, this, this, the guest is king on this show, yeah. or queen. Uh, um, that's the way I've always led the show. Uh, you know, we don't do... Uh, that's the the show is a dialogue, so not to get too much off on that. But I was that's what you, I love. I, and I appreciate at the beginning of the show that you didn't give me the Miranda warning that anything I say can <laughs> and will be held against me. No, we still have free speech in this country, at least uh, for a while. Uh, and that's good. The, and I really didn't want to ask you because this this Deutsche Bank uh, Mazar, I can't remember how to pronounce, it, but this seems like it's going to be. A, yeah. ma- oh, how do you say it, Mazarus? I think so. Yeah. I mean, this. I'm hearing that this can be a really, uh, this could be a landmark case. What do you, what do you think? It sure can. So, what uh, for the audience? What what this involves is the request by the House of Representatives in I think two cases and the state of New York in one case to obtain um, records of the president's finances and taxes from third parties, accounting firms and um, financial firms. In the ordinary course, when you're a prosecutor and you're um, investigating something and that subject has records that are relevant to your investigation that are held at the bank or at the post office or at the um, telephone um, provider or wherever, that you get to subpoena them and you can get the records of the entry and exit of the post office box. You can get their cell phone records. You can get their bank account information. All of that stuff, um, generally speaking, is obtainable. And in this case, that's what the House representatives and the um, New York uh, State uh, law enforcement authorities sought. And um, the court in each of those cases held 
um, that yes, of course, they can receive that stuff. That's you know basic blocking and tackling when it comes to in- investigations. The president, um, having lost all of those cases, appealed um, to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided to take the case. It's in the discretion of the Supreme Court whether to take cases or not. There's no automatic right to review by the Supreme Court. In this case, the Supreme Court took those three cases, and we'll hear from them probably in June what their answer is. And um, it's not, it's, it's as they say in law, it's a case of first impression in some respects because these sorts of subpoenas for the private records of the president has not um, reached the court before. We know from the case of Richard Nixon, where they obtained the Supreme Court in a, uh, a unanimous ruling, allowed the House to obtain the tape recordings in the Oval Office of President Nixon. Um, in this case, they're not asking for official government records. They're asking for his personal records, which may be you know, uh, outcome distinguishing between precedent and, and this new case. So the court will determine for the first time, one, whether the president can be investigated. The president has said he cannot be investigated. Two, whether or not in the course of that investigation they can obtain his private records held by um, third parties, um, banks and um, accounting firms, and um, what, if any, rights he has to keep that stuff out of the hands of um, investigators. So it'll be monumental uh, one way or the other. And you'd like to think that um, precedent, um, the Paula Jones versus Bill Clinton case, which allowed Bill Clinton to be deposed about private matters, uh, his you know alleged affairs uh, with other women, and with the Nixon case where they got the public records, uh, the tapes, um, that this will fall in line consistent with those rulings and they will determine that these investigators, if they have a legitimate reason, and that's one question that they'll have to answer too, if they have a legitimate reason to seek these records, that those records can be obtained. But it's hard to tell with this court because we've never seen the court address the you know scope of executive power um, with the new judges Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, uh, who are ten, who tend historically to be pro-executive branch power um, judges, right? I mean, you probably don't have it's. It's pretty hard to guess what's going to happen. But do you have any any predictions on this this type of case? I, I can't predict what happened yesterday. Uh, <laughs> so no, no predictions as to tomorrow. It's. It seems like to me it's going to, uh, just as someone who follows this stuff uh, from a non-lawyer perspective, it seems like it might come down to Roberts. It seems like everybody kind of votes. I don't know. The Supreme Court to me is like a political body. I, I don't. I. I guess it's sad. It's not. It's not supposed to be, but everybody just. That's what it seems like now. And Roberts is the only one I have a hope for that he he swung kind of on the Affordable Care Act. He swung that way. So uh, I'm not expecting anything from the other one. But who knows? Well, so that's right. Uh, that's a true statement. Who knows? But uh, to, 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 your, to your point, Roberts, um, with the retirement of, of Justice Kennedy, Roberts, to the extent there is a swing vote at all on that court, is the most likely swing voter, meaning he can not vote with conservatives, even though he is himself conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Judge Kennedy, Justice Kennedy did that on on some matters, um, and that's why he was considered a swing vote. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, before she retired, was also that swing vote, who sometimes just didn't vote according to the conventional wisdom of her political um, philosophy. The thing that makes this case unknowable to me is that in the two cases where the Supreme Court had to make decisions about whether or not the President of the United States could be sued civilly, the Paula Jones versus Bill Clinton case, and whether or not the President of the United States had the uh, privilege to withhold information, um, the tapes, the court was unanimous in ruling against the President in both of those cases. And so that could you know, sort of portend the possibility of another unanimous ruling saying that the president is not above the law and that if there's a justified reason for seeking these documents, then those documents shall be produced unanimous decision. You know, this is not a this is not a complicated case. If it breaks down along um, you know, conservative versus liberal lines, then you're correct that Justice Roberts is the most likely um, unknown vote in this in uh, among the nine judges. It's sort of funny because I mean the in the much used but correct phrase that no one would know more than you follow the money. I mean that's really isn't that what this whole thing's been about since the beginning? Where is the money coming from with this guy? And that's 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 I mean <laughs> he's been he's been hiding his tax returns for like since the since that's what this whole thing is about. So it seems like it's the best. Re- I, I I don't know. I've never seen any more reason to want to know what is in someone's financial records than this Well, case. we sort of pivoted. So in respect of the articles of impeachment, that has really nothing to do with his personal financial dealings. In respect of the way he has comported himself as a president and as um, a private businessman, there's a lot of concern as to whether or not he has um, properly paid his taxes, properly uh, accounted for the value of property um, in um, New York State when it comes to depreciation value and and, and the like. And um, Congress is trying to figure out what to do in circumstances like this where the president has not followed the tradition of other presidents, which is to release the the tax records so that people can be assured that the president is not acting in his own interests um, at the expense of, of the government. And the Congress has said we need, because this president has not released these taxes, we don't know how, if there's going to be future presidents that do the same thing, how to write laws to ensure that we make sure that the president is not acting with a conflict of interest. That's what is part of the imperative, they say, to receive the, the, the tax records. And so that whole question of tax records and, and the way he um, accounts for his money on in, 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 in his businesses is uh, an important but independent line of inquiry from the impeachment. Moving back to impeachment, uh, so now we uh, had the vote, which uh, I might add on a personal note was uh, watching that on TV was um, just <laughs> really just awesome, I have to say, uh, and and not just from the not just from the personal perspective of how I feel politically, but just watching that was really, I don't know. I mean, you've we've seen it twice now. 
It's really historical to see that, isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, you know, it wasn't riveting television. <laughs> wasn't um you know Downton Abbey or Roots or anything like that but um I don't know what modern television shows are I don't watch television no, those are great references but, um, the the historical importance of what happened um over the past uh, few weeks is you know something of course that our kids will read about in in my grandkids your kids will read about in in history books and so it was it's always interesting to watch history unfold what do you think history is going to think about the um <laughs> the six the, the six page single space letter that he wrote to pelosi i mean that that just seems comical that that'll be in a history book someday well uh, you know it, it's the president is 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 uh you, a unique uh, person in many respects in some respects he's the least transparent president he's not released his taxes and all the other um, things that he's been um, trying to protect that we've just talked about. On the other hand, he's the most transparent president because of his Twitter feed and then these, this letter he wrote to Nancy Pelosi, the six-page letter, which was essentially a, um, a rant. It was like a six-page, you know, sort of um, stream of consciousness um, rant against what he thinks has been... Um, the way he's been unfairly treated. Most presidents don't give you that. Mm. They are much more protective of their um, thoughts, at least until they leave office and they write a best-selling book about their mm -hmm. thoughts. Um, this president is, you know, he's transparent in, in that way, and we get to see in, in real time what he's thinking, and he's pissed. I mean, there's no yeah. question about it. He feels that he has been under investigation, essentially, since the day he was elected, even before he was inaugurated, and that it is political and it is politically motivated and it is unfair and that it is interfering with his ability to govern. That's his sincere beliefs. And others say, you know, au contraire, you know, we haven't been doing anything different to you than that which was done to President Clinton or Barack Obama. Um, as examples of presidents be before you, and each of them, you know, sort of got on with it. You take George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. George W. Bush won against Al Gore in a in a highly contested election where they were counting uh, ballots in Florida, and it went to the Supreme Court twice, and the court ruled essentially uh, that George Bush w was president, even though Al Gore. Um, beat him by, I think, about a million votes in the popular um, vote. And the whole counting process in Florida was uh, suspect at, at best. Mm -hmm. George W. Bush was sworn in, and he never looked back. He just said, I'm president. I'm not going to you know, entertain any conversation that I am an illegitimately elected president. I am the president. I was sworn in. The court you know, ruled in my favor. Let's, you know, get over it and move on. And people did move over and and move on, and, and that was that. This president cannot get over the fact that some people believe that because the hacking of the DNC computers and because of the social media um, misinformation campaign that uh, our intelligence agencies say was um, conducted by Russia to help him, that he can't get over the fact that people think he may have been 
illegitimately elected. He would have been much better off following in the footsteps of George W. Bush and say, you know what, I'm president. I don't care what you think about Russia and Putin and hacking and social media. I'm president and I'm not looking back and I'm going to be president as best as I'm able to. He would have helped himself a lot, but he he just doesn't seem to get over um, the notion that people, some people still think that his, you know, uh, election was um, obtained by foreign assistance. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it is still hard to believe that. I mean, yeah, I, I, I can't agree more. I also uh, have found myself thinking about the fact that a uh, maybe a clue that things were going to be a problem were a president whose first act as president was settling a $25 million fraud lawsuit for a fake university, which I think happened the day after he came in office, but... Well, was... there's been some problems, for sure. <laughs> um, um, you know, he's just uh, paid a lot of money in fines for no. the manner in which he operated his um, foundation, the, the, no. the court essentially finding that, or the prosecutor's office finding that it was essentially a, a, a fraud, um, and he paid money for Trump University. I mean, so there are a lot of things in his business life that are less than exemplary, that's for certain. Um, maybe just bringing it back to sort of closing on uh, impeachment. I mean, what do you think? So now we're going to the Senate trial. What do you think we're going to see? And I know Speaker, people are talking about strategies. Should Speaker Pelosi wait on uh, sending the articles? What do, what do you think? Well, it's complicated, as they say. Um, I think um, Pelosi has a point, which is to say, I need to know what the nature of the proceeding will be in the Senate before I determine who it is that I want to be the House managers, meaning essentially the prosecutors from the House who will go over to the Senate and um, try the case. The way the process works for, for the listening audience is the House indicts the president. He returns art, They return articles of impeachment. That has occurred. So the president essentially has been indicted. Then what happens is that the House designates members of the House to go over to the Senate and try the case where the, you know, the, the articles of impeachment go over to the Senate and the senators are the jury and the Chief Justice, Justice of the United States is the presiding um, officer. And these House managers, as they're called, come over and present the case to convince the senators that the president should be convicted. And similarly, the president has um, people who defend him on the floor of the Senate, um, his White House counsel. He can have private counsel there. He can use other members of the House, and they have a you know a real. They should have a real trial, and then the senators vote. And if 67 of them uh, vote to convict, then he is convicted and um, can be removed. Um, from office and barred from holding future office. So what Nancy Pelosi is saying is, I can't figure out who my managers should be, who my prosecutors, if you will, should be, until you tell me what type of you know proceeding we're going to have. If we're just going to have, for example, speeches, I may want to send my best speechers. If I um, am going to have witnesses and cross-examination, I may choose a different group of people who are the best cross-examiners. So tell me what the 
proceedings will look like so I can designate who I'm going to send over. And, you know, you, you can analogize it to a sporting event. You know, you have a group of athletes from multiple uh, sport disciplines who are gathered with their coach and, and they're going to play a game and the coach has got to figure out who among the group that they have will go participate in this game. And the coach is saying, all right, good, tell me what the game is so I can figure out which of my athletes I want to send because a hockey player is not the same as a high hurdler. And um, that's what Pelosi is essentially saying. Tell me what the tell me what the rules are. I'll designate. I'm ready to go. I have all my you know possible um, players. I just need to pick my starting lineup. Tell me what the rules are, and I'll pick them and send them right over. And um, we haven't gotten an agreement in the Senate about sort of essentially what game we're playing. Are we going to have live witnesses that will be cross-examined? Are we just giving speeches, and therefore we want our best orators? And so I think you know there's a fairness in Pelosi asking for what the rules of the Senate will be before she's desi- before she designates her team. It, and and that's where we are. That's a great point. I actually I, that's the first time I've I've heard that it makes complete sense. Uh so and and just to clarify cuz I've been unclear on this the whole time. I mean, Mitch McConnell does have to hold some kind of trial, right? They can't just t- take a vote and that's it. No, the Senate the, the, the Senate is required to hold a trial under the Constitution. The, the, the House of Soul uh, authority in respect of um, impeachment and then the Senate um, shall have a trial and I think a public vote uh, is required under the Constitution. So there has to be a trial of some sort, but the Constitution doesn't specify what the um, type of trial. And, and, you know, they're debating now between um, live witnesses versus just the previous testimony from the House, whether there'll be additional um, opportunity to, to take depositions of, of, of new witnesses in private like they did in Clinton, and then read those deposition testimony, testimonial statements into the, into the record. All of that is what is being um, debated. Uh, Schumer um, wants live witnesses. Uh, McConnell doesn't seem to want live witnesses. Uh, ultimately, the way it would work is that if uh, either side can get 51 votes in favor of its position, then that becomes the position. So if Schumer was able to entice four um, Republicans to come over to the side of live witnesses, then there'll be live witnesses. If McConnell can hold um, 51 votes for no live witnesses, then there'll be no live witnesses. And so that is what's going to happen, you know, between now and, and the time they reach a, a resolution. If you were, let's say, um, the acting as the attorney for uh, Mr. Trump or the in the impeachment trial, I mean, what what do you think would benefit him the most, uh, a long live witness? I mean, how, how I'm just curious from your perspective, what would you do for Trump? Well, it depends on what the live witnesses have to say. If there are live witnesses, if um, former National Security Advisor Bolton or um, his deputy, Kupperman, or um, uh, any of the other witnesses, Mulvaney, who have not been allowed to testify, if they have exculpatory evidence, if they can say, I was there in the room at the table and this is what um, was discussed, and the way in which it's been characterized to date is just wrong because I'm a first-hand witness to um, what occurred, 
then of course he'd be advantaged to bring those witnesses forward to counteract the testimony before the House Intelligence um, Committee, the 17 witnesses that testified there, all of whom said that this was a, in the words of Bolton, a drug deal, a bad, you know, a bad deal uh, where the president of the United States was essentially shaking down the Ukrainian president for his own personal benefit. So if he if he's got exculpatory evidence to produce, he you know would be advised to to do it because you know at least from a historical standpoint, then he gets to clear his name of the allegations. On the other hand, you might say, look, the government's case, the House's case, um, is is uh, incomplete. It's spotty. They only have secondhand um, witnesses. And like a defendant in a criminal trial who has the right to remain silent, let's just remain silent and then argue that they didn't prove their case. We'll win. Um, uh, the 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 verdict, and uh, we'll go on with our merry way. So I mean, you could you could argue it either way. My expectation is that it, is that the president doesn't have exculpatory witnesses, that he isn't going to put on an affirmative case of his defense. What he is going to say is that the case that the House is presenting is um, inadequate to um, have a conviction. Yeah, it it seems like it'll most likely follow what we saw the Republicans do in the House, uh, which is uh, more of a show than uh, substance. But but who knows? Yeah, because uh, in this case they can't argue about the process so much because the Republicans hold a, a majority in the Senate, so they determine the process. So they can't complain about the process that they are in fact determining. That's very true. Well, uh, Michael Zeldin, uh, as always, I've come to the portion of the show where. Uh, I let people plug, promote, sell, capitalism, anything you want to – website, anything you want to tell the audience about? Uh, I have. I, I have. Do <laughs> <laughs> you remember the last question in the debate last night was, do you have anything in this Christmas season, do you have anything to give or um, ask uh, repentance of? And I have nothing to, to give, but I uh, ask for repentance of all of my uh, inarticulate thoughts. Oh, no, no. Your expertise is uh, just greatly valued. I can't thank you enough for coming back on. And I'm looking forward to, uh, I mean, we are going to, I know you, I know how sick you are of impeachment, but we do have a trial coming up next year. Yeah, well, let's, so, we'll talk probably in the second-ish week of January. I expect that they come back on like the 6th of January, hopefully between now and then they'll have ironed out the rules and then we'll start a trial, you know, somewhere thereafter and we can talk like in the in the middle of the trial or we can talk once the verdict is rendered it's up to you it's your show i i I love both i can't help thinking in the hollywood movie sense that it just would be so great if like the doors flew open to the senate and zelensky walked in and just laid it all out there i guess that doesn't happen in real life yeah, but not in mine. Maybe, <laughs> maybe in other people. Or Bolton, but, or one of these. But so far, so far, no one has plucked me out of the chorus line. <laughs> Michael Zeldin, so great having you back on Counterintelligence, and I'm looking forward to talking uh, next year. Thank you for listening. Follow Forensic News on Twitter at Forensic Newsnet. Counterintelligence is at Intel Pod. My personal account is Eric Levey. Support Forensic News on Patreon. Subscribe to Counterintelligence everywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Eric Levey. And this is Counterintelligence.